0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan. Last week, in light of the passing of Tayyip Mahmood, we discussed the legacy of Sarawakian strongman and how his policies shaped Sarawak over the years, for better or worse. This week, we will be looking to the future and exploring how will Sarawak emerge from under the shadow of Thai Mahmood. Joining me once again is an expert in Sarawak politics, Dr. James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. This conversation will also be available as podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. James, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, good to
1: be back, my friend.
0: We did an entire episode on the legacy of Tayyip Mahmood last week um, and also how um, Sarawak transformed throughout his decades in charge. Before we talk about the present tra- uh, trajectory, just um, give me an uh, encapsulation, and overview. Um, what key historical events or policies do you believe have shaped the state's political landscape the most over the years?
1: So I think if you look at the political landscape in Sarawak, I think it's quite clear that the landscape has been dominated by one family, uh, Taib Mahmud and his uncle. Uh, collectively, they were in charge in Sarawak basically from 1970 onwards uh, until very recently. So we start off with the uncle, Tun Rahman Yakob, who was Chief Minister from 1970 to 81, and from 81 to 2014, it was the nephew. Uh, uh, Mahmud, and after that, he became the governor until uh, very recently. So basically, we can uh, make a very strong argument that, you know, for most of the time, Sarawak has been in the Malaysian Federation. Uh, most of what you see today, the landscape has been shaped by this uh, family. Um, in terms of uh, uh, politics, uh, basically at the start of uh, Sarawak's uh, uh uh, independence through the Federation Malaysia 63. Uh, the politics was basically uh, between uh, three groups. Uh, this was the Dayak group, uh, the Chinese group, and the uh, Muslim group. But at that time, the Muslim group was quite divided. Uh, the Dayak was quite united. And interestingly enough, uh, the main Chinese party SUPP, at that time was also quite multiracial. Uh, but from the 70s onwards, uh, the ratio lines become a lot clearer. Uh, sort of the Chinese sort of congregated from the late 1970s onwards, sort of congregated around SUPP. And then with the DAP coming in in the mid 1970s, they also captured a portion of the Chinese vote. Uh, the diets increasingly uh, began to, to uh, center around uh, PBB plus some key diet parties and when we look at the last 10 years uh, the line is sort of uh, fairly well divided Uh, the chinese again stick with mostly with supp and dap Uh, the diets are splintered into three different parties and the malay muslim vote or malay muslim Strop milana vote is all uh, monopolized by uh, pbb so in terms of the big change in terms of the political terrain you can argue that the big change occur among the diet population they've been sort of uh, divided put together for the last 30 years and the Chinese has been uh, relatively stable between the opposition DAP and the pro-establishment SUPP while the uh, Malay stroke Malay Muslim stroke Malana uh, they've been solidly behind PBB so that is basically the political landscape
0: since independence so how did GE14 and GE15 change the balance of powers from a Sarawak point of view?
1: On the night uh, Barisan National lost power, Sarawak Barisan National basically left the Barisan National. In a short time afterward, they uh, reformatted themselves and formed a new coalition called GPS. Right. So, strictly speaking, uh, they, they sort of didn't leave Barisan, uh, you know, Uh, They were not the only ones. Several other parties also left after Barisan uh, lost power in 2018. I think to understand the sort of dynamics between Putrajaya and Sarawak, I think you have to go back to a lot earlier. You got to go back to the GE in 2008. Uh, That was the sort of watershed moment in terms of Sabah and Sarawak politics versus Putrajaya. Because in 2008, Amnon uh, did not have enough votes or enough MPs uh, to form the federal government. So for the very first time, they had to rely on the MPs from Sabah and Sherrod form the federal government, so that's the reason why from two thousand eight onwards, uh, uh, the day one Raya Speaker and the two deputies came from Sabah and Sarawak for the very first time. And after that, shortly after that, uh, two thousand and nine, I think, uh, Malaysia Day became public holiday. So it was obvious that you know uh, Sabah Sarawak suddenly found themselves with with uh, the power to to rock Amnon's boat. So so Najib had to play along. So that was uh, where it started from. And of course, as you mentioned in, in 2018, uh, they lost power, and suddenly people realized that the so called uh, vote bank in Sabah and Sabah were out for grabs mm. uh, because uh, GPS suddenly became an independent coalition. Uh, in Sabah, it was uh, a kabu all over the place, but again, uh, there was enough uh, block there. So, the way to understand it is that from the Malay political establishment side, uh, for the longest time before 2008, they saw the 57 seats on Sabah and Sarah as basically uh, Barisan National's fixed deposit. And they said it openly, you see. So after 2008, after they lost, they realised that, you know, uh, there is a block of people from Borneo and we can no longer uh, sort of, you know, take them for granted. And that's the reason why from uh, 2008 onwards, both sides, are the Malay establishment and also on the opposition side, uh, Pakatan Harapan, they started looking towards uh, Sabah and Sarah. And uh, this can be easily proven because in a uh 2018 when uh, Barisan National lost the election Uh, one of the most interesting thing and it's not widely reported was that if you look at Pakatan Harapan the so-called promises uh, the buku they put out uh, they had five trusts in the book right? and one of the trusts was actually dealing with Sabah and Sarawak. Uh, I can guarantee you I've been studying Malaysian elections for a very long time. If you go back to all the earlier manifesto right, Sabah and Sarawak never came in as one of the core trusts of any manifesto uh, before 2018. So this gives you idea of suddenly people waking up and said, oh my god, across the south china sea you have a block of mps that account for 25 percent of the seats in parliament and therefore on this side on the malayan side if we want to form any government with the split in malay vote we need the 25 percent from the other side to help us form a government so that is where uh, everything sort of came together for sabah and Sarawak. they suddenly found that you know they hold the balance of power
0: So they do hold the balance of power. They are kingmakers today, more so than they've ever been. So on the one hand, James, it seems like Srawa has finally uh, an even bigger say than they had before in politics. On the other hand, many might argue that this is the same right wing elite political party and players that have been um, with Barisan National in the past, they are just now taking a sort of different form. And this is not exactly a grassroots, pro rakyat you know, left-leaning, social democratic type of coalition or socialist type of coalition, for example. You know, it is essentially a top-down kind of um, warlord style of party, some uh, coalition, some might say. Um, how are you analysing this situation?
1: So the first point to understanding what is happening in Sarawa is to basically uh, understand the tagline for GPS. Uh, GPS headline is Sarawak first, and that sort of summarizes up uh, everything you need to know about GPS. Uh, Basically, uh, they want Surawat or Sarawak nationalism to be the cornerstone of their political ideology. And their ideology, for lack of a better word, is basically Surawat for the Sarawakians. Uh, So that's basically where they come from. Uh, This uh, step on Sarawak nationalism actually started in the 1960s. Uh, but under uh, Rahman Yaqub, it was sort of uh, pushed down and it did not come back until after 2014 when Taib became the governor and you had a new chief minister called uh, Adinan Satem or Totnam. Uh, he's the one who sort of brought it back, this rise of Surat nationalism. Um, I think the reason why uh, uh, Surat nationalism has sort of suddenly come back uh, was certainly, uh, you know, As I mentioned, after 2008, uh, the people of Sabah suddenly realized that uh, they hold a political balance. And for a very long time, there was this set of political grievances they held against Putrajaya, uh, but they couldn't do anything about it before 2008 because they didn't have any power. So suddenly, uh, you know, for Sabah and Surat, they realized that state nationalism is actually a very, very powerful tool. And this also coincides with the fact that, you know, for the last 30 years, uh, many people in Sabah and Surat uh, see increasing extremism in Malayan politics, and they didn't like it. Huh? When I talk about extremism in politics, uh, what I basically mean is uh, the rise of identity politics in, in Peninsular Malaysia. So it was quite clear that on the Peninsular side, uh, racial politics, religious politics, all these things become much sharper. And I'm sure all your listeners know that in Sabah, and Sarawak, uh, the defining feature there is the demography, right? There are so many different groups. Uh, race and religion, yes, it's important, but it is not a as in uh, Peninsula Malaysia so people became uncomfortable so this uh, coincided with the rise of state nationally and it worked very well so uh, once Barisan National fell, uh, GPS was formed so this headline of Sarah first is all about keeping the unique Sarah identity where uh, sort of you know the sort of Malaysia we had in the 1950s and 60s where race and religion was not as sharp. Uh, People sort of, you know, let live with each other. And this is basically what uh, the Sarawak GPS wants. Uh, They want Sarawak to be sort of a state within a state. Uh, They want to protect the unique Sarawak identity. And more importantly, they want to make sure that the sort of uh, sharp race and religious politics we see on the Malayan side uh, do not come into Sarawak. And I think this has uh, sort of uh, caught on with the people in Sarawak, uh, partly because they can see all the crazy stuff happening in peninsula, but more importantly, uh, they have a clear point of reference because they see a political mess in Sabah after AMNO uh, MCMIC entered uh, Sabah politics after 1990. So there's a very uh, clear, strong sense that uh, among Sarawakians that we have to protect Sarawak to make sure that the sort of toxic politics we find outside Sarawak, we make sure that they don't come in. Um, so this is where uh, the GPS has caught on, and I think they're quite successful in selling this message. And also, I think the people are also quite willing to accept this message that Sarawak is quite unique in, in within the Federation of Malaysia, and we better protect Sarawak's
0: identity. So speaking about Sarawak's identity, autonomy and grievances with um, Peninsula Malaysia, um, I I think we have to talk about MA63. Now, we have done full-fledged shows on MA63 across the station where we really dive deep into it. But for the purpose of this discussion, could you sum up what exactly is MA63 and how much of the MA63 promises have been fulfilled over either the last four years or since 2008, where you analyze that that's where Sarawak and perhaps East Malaysia at large started to gain more autonomy from Peninsula.
1: Okay. Well, a bit of self-promotion. If you want to understand MS63, just Google my, ma- my name in MS63 <laughs> and one of my articles will pop up. Anyway, um, just a very quick summary for your for listeners, for those of you who, who uh, find it difficult to follow MS63. I think the easiest way to understand MS63 is uh, you see it as historical grievances. Uh, This is not unique in Sabah or Sarawak. There are many uh, places around the world that has historical grievances. The one which everyone in Malaysia has a clear understanding is that we all know about the Sulu issue, right? The Sulu issue is also historical grievances of the Muslim uh, area in Mindanao against the, the, the government in Manila. So historical grievances is basically things that are deeply rooted in history that has been unresolved, mostly political issues. So in terms of MA63, without going into detail, I'll just say that the four main issues in terms of historical grievances uh, for Sabah and Sarawak are the following. Uh, The first one is autonomy. I think people in Sabah and Sarawak are very angry with the history of federal intervention in state politics. Uh, last week, I spoke about the Ninkang affair where the federal government came in and helped to depose uh, Ninkang. In Sabah, as you mentioned, Project IC and how they try to manipulate Sabah politics through the rotational chief ministers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the second area is uh, the issue of economic development. Again, historical grievances and this is linked to the fact that Sabah and Sarawak at one time produces two-thirds of the oil and gas. Uh, uh, output in Malaysia and there's a very strong sense of historical grievances because uh, many people in Sarawak and Sabah feel that you know although we produce so much and yet our own states lack infrastructure and Sabah as you know, is the second poorest state in Malaysia and Sarawak is also a very poor state especially outside the urban centres so people feel that the oil and gas uh, uh, resources has been taken over by Putrajaya and of course uh, some of the listeners may Know that uh, one of the unusual things in Malaysia was that in 1974, they passed an act called Petronas Act, and under the act, uh, is quite unique. Uh, the Act is unique in the sense that it says that any oil and gas resources found in any part of the federation belongs to the uh, federal government through uh, their company called Petronas. The second interesting thing about Petronas, which a lot of people do not know, is that the Charter of Petronas says that Petronas actually doesn't report to the government. Petronas actually reports to the Prime Minister and nobody else. So this is quite unique. So people in Sabah and Strauss say that you look at Peninsula Malaysia and you look at the major iconic projects like the petronas twin tower north south highway kelala epujaya all these are mostly funded by uh, oil and gas money from sabah and sarawak so the third grievances is the issue of uh, political recognition right I think in people in Sabah and Sarawak, uh, they are very uh, unhappy with the fact that, you know, they always felt that, as I mentioned, uh, the Malay political establishment, once Sabah and Sarawak helped to form the Federation of Malaysia, they sort of left as a fixed deposit. They were sort of ignored something like the country cousins, right? So uh, they always were very unhappy after Sabah and Sarawak in the 1970s, when there was a constitutional amendment where they lumped Sabah and Sarawak together with the 11 states in the federation now of course that has been remedied two years ago when there was a constitutional amendment sabah and syrah are now placed on on the separate line uh, in addition to the other uh 11 states so there was always this issue of recognition that uh sabah and syrah are two out of the three founding members of the federation right. so they're not two out of 13, right? It's two out of three because originally there were four founding members, Malaya, Singapore, North Borneo and Sarawak. But since Singapore left, you can sort of lump those two together and say, oh, you know, Sabah are so just two out of the 13. So in terms of political recognition, uh, in terms of political recognition, you also have the issue of, uh, uh, you know, that the natives of Sabah and Sarawak, uh, they were promised very clearly before 1963 that once uh, Malaysia, the federation was formed, uh, they will be put on the same uh, level as the bumiputra. In other words, the pro- bumiputra policy in Malaysia was supposed to apply to them. Uh, But they always felt like third-class Bumutra. They always said that, you know, the first and second-class Bumutra are basically the Malay and the Muslim community in Peninsular Malaysia, where they received the bulk of the government subsidy under the affirmative action policies. And they got very little other than education. So it's a question of recognition. And the fourth one is something that I mentioned earlier. It is this this need for Putrajaya to control Sabah, exporting it's uh it's, you know, race and religious sport to Sabah and Sirot. So this is sort of the sort of his key historical uh, grievances when it comes to MS-63. Now you ask the question, what has been happening to MS-63? So basically what happened was that after 2008, uh, when uh, Najib realised that he needs Sabah and Sirot, they set up the first uh, committee, MS-63, uh, they did some work on it like they set up different technical committees but no real work was actually done until 2018. As I mentioned, MS 63 was one of the five key pillars. So they set up a committee Uh, they did try to deal with uh, some of the core issues and that committee unfortunately has been uh, has never been able to resolve some of the uh, core issues right so the core issues that uh, throughout the last 10 years have never been resolved is that who actually owns the oil and gas resources in Sabah and Sarawak as I mentioned earlier one of the key grievances is that uh, there's a level of underdevelopment in Sabah and Sarawak and they feel that this is linked to the oil and gas resources the second key issue they've never been res- uh, able to resolve. Is it who actually owns the continental shelf? Because there are lots of resources out there, right? So the sort of uh, issues that managed to resolve in the MA Technical uh, uh, Working Committee for the last uh, 10 years are things like the Constitution Amendment. Uh, they managed to resolve some of the key bureaucratic rock blocks with uh, uh, Sabah and Sarawak. So now the next stage is basically uh, they're talking about decentralization. And here we're talking about big, big items. Huh? They're talking about things like you know transferring uh, healthcare uh, back to Sabah and Sarawak. So the state-level health department will look after the entire health of the entire state. And uh, the other thing that Sarah is very interested in, and my understanding that Sabah may not be very interested in this, is taking control of uh, state education. Uh, This is a huge thing. I'm sure some of your listeners know that, you know, if you look at the Malaysian budget, right, the biggest item is actually education. So education is really huge. So, you know, transferring these two core functions, health and education, uh, back to Sarah is really a really, really big, Deal uh, in the Malaysian Federation setup. Uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, But I think there is a strong push in Sarawak, especially for education. And part of the reason is because the Sarawak government is very adamant that uh, they're very strong in trying to bring back English language because I think there's a clear understanding, uh, not only in in Sarawak but throughout Malaysia, among the experts, that one of the reasons why Malaysia has become uh, less competitive in the economic arena in the last 30 years is because the standard of our English is, is sort of dropping. But overall the issue of education in Malaysia is dropping uh, quite drastically. Uh, This is just Common sense, you look around Glen Valley, right? If you were to ask me, right, what is the growth industry in Glen Valley, right? I always tell my friends, you look at the number of international schools mushrooming in 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 Glen Valley. Uh, all these schools have the word international on it, but you look at the students there; they're all Malaysians, <laughs> Malaysian middle class people right. trying to do the the GCA all levels and A levels, right? They're really not international. Is they're calling international because they want to bypass the, they want to offer the the British. Uh, you know uh, OOA levels, and Clan Valley is 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 quite incredible. So we're not only talking about the expansion of private education, right? We're talking about you know a whole host of of. Private uh, uh, providers, Clan uh, Valley is one of the. In fact, I think it's one of the very one of the two places I know in the whole region. Right, you have unlimited choice. There's even a Canadian high school qualification <laughs> offered to Sadway. <laughs> then, as I mentioned, the British. Then you got American school in Ampang. Right. You know, and you know, so, so the choice is, is is endless. You got the Australian matriculation. So you know, so you know. It, uh, I mean, people understand, but because of the sort of toxic politics that we see in Peninsula Malaysia, where uh, education is highly politicized, right? Nobody wants to come out and say that we have to deal with this. Uh, I think the present government uh, is worried about it. That's why there will be more discussion about the PISA scores. But, you know, the reason why I talk about it is that because I think uh, people need to understand why the Surat government is moving towards its own way education. Because there's really no time to waste. Uh, they really want to do this and I'm highly supportive of what they're doing.
0: On the show with me today is Dr. James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. We will continue this discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan, and on the show with me today is Dr. James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. And I'm asking him, how will Sarawak emerge from under the shadow of Thai Mahmood? This conversation will also be available as a podcast. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to this on Spotify, do give us a follow, drop us a review. It would be really, really helpful. So, James, how would you describe the similarities and differences between Taib Mahmoud and Abang Joe? I
1: think, in terms of the structure of GPS, uh, not much has changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The core of GPS is still PBB. Uh, Basically, the uh, uh, institutional structure of politics in Saraw was uh, uh, carved out by Taib Mahmoud. That thing is still there. But in terms of the sort of uh, initiative that is going on in Saraw, I think it's, it's quite different. I think uh, the Premier Abanjo is going all out to sort of uh, lay the foundation for Sarawak for its next uh, phase of economic development. So the sort of thing, as I as I said earlier, is sort of a state within the state approach. So they're sort of trying to do everything themselves rather than wait for the federal government. I think one of the reasons why they're able to do that is because Sarawak has a fairly large reserve. Uh, when you took power, they had a reserve of about 30 uh, billion ringgit. This is cash in a bank. Last after the settlement with Petronas, they've been getting billions of ringgit uh, additional money from Sarawak. So let me just run through some of the things uh, they're doing. Uh, uh, I'm just going through the list uh, without uh, uh, without saying whether I support or not. It's just a list. So, for example, uh, they set out their own development bank and mm-hmm. they're in the process by next year uh, buying a commercial bank. Uh, they're in the process of setting up their own airline. Uh, you know, uh, They set out their own uh, uh, oil and gas company called Petros. Uh, They're moving into things like hydrogen production, And, you know, they're trying to sell the electricity through uh, uh, new technology. When I say new technology, is that uh, this technology does not exist yet. And here I'm talking about trying to build a special underground uh, pipeline to sell electricity to Singapore, right? So things like that. And also, they're also going uh, very big into digital economy. And, of course, the big thing everyone is talking about in Sarawak now is that how can Sarawak uh, benefit from Nusantara, the new capital uh, built in Indonesia. So many of them think that there'll be some sort of spillover effect. So these are some of the big things they are going uh, 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 forward. And of course, the big thing is something that's been around for quite long, which is the Sarawak Corridor for Renewable Energy Score. So that's been around for a long time. Basically, they want to make Sarawak a a, a powerhouse in terms of cheap electricity because of the uh, hydropower. Uh, But I think he has some big challenges coming up. Mm Part of it is because um, Sarawak, uh, like other states, uh, the economy actually contracted during the COVID years. Right. Uh, my own uh, figure suggests Sarawak economy actually contracted by somewhere between 5 to 10%. And uh, Sarawak's economy is quite small. Uh, they contribute only about 10% of Malaysia's GDP. Uh, that is one constraint. The second constraint is, as I mentioned, the HR issue. HR issues high-quality workforce. Because uh, for the last 30 years, uh, uh, people with highly skilled have been leaving Sarawak, moving to Clan Valley in Singapore and overseas. Uh, and of course, uh, the other thing is a small population, uh, less than uh, 3 million people. But again, Abanjo, I would argue, is uh, highly ambitious. He's already put out a plan called the Post-COVID uh, Development Strategy. And the idea is to make Sarawak a fully developed state by uh, 2030. Uh, Whether we we will arrive there in in about five or six years' time is open to debate. Uh, But really, if you look at uh, uh, the time he's been premier, uh, every year he comes up with a lot of uh, new initiative. Uh, Some of it is untested technology like hydrogen production, uh, but you really can't uh, fault him for for not thinking outside the box. A lot of stuff that he's doing, uh, none of the other states are doing.
0: If you look at when we look at the challenges I'm um, faced by Srawa today and, and moving forward um, how much of those challenges are because of um, Taib Mahmood himself so for example um, credible environmental organizations such as the Bruno Manser Fonds have alleged that type has amassed billions through various businesses, especially logging, um, rainforest logging. Many organizations have also pointed out, whilst Rawa saw some GDP growth during um, Taib Mahmud's time, at the same time, you know there was massive wealth and income disparity between um, the haves and the have-nots, the urban and the rural. How do you see? These challenges, um, these legacy um, left behind by the um, by Taik Um how do you see Srawa and Abang Jo and and, and Sarawakians at large dealing with this moving forward?
1: So I think all those things are basically true. Uh, as I mentioned in in our conversation uh, last week, uh, what you will see uh, moving forward is that more and more of these stories will come out. Uh, now that he's no longer around so a lot of it previously was basically uh, what we might call uh, allegations uh, but now i suspect a lot of uh, stories uh, coming out uh will be based on on, on facts uh, part of it is because there is a litigation currently happening between uh, uh types children and, and and the second wife and you know, with uh, litigation in the courts, uh, once the paper goes in, uh, those papers sooner or later will be leaked <laughs> out, and you will, uh, you know, you will have uh, the real details about the holdings. At least in Malaysia, where it can be double checked, uh, I think uh, all those things will come out. And I think that uh, I'm one of the uh, people who believe that a lot of the stories will probably be proven true. I think. The only question mark is the sort of figures involved. I think that is the only uh, question mark. People don't know the the true figures uh, because if you look at the allegations, it can be uh, hovering anywhere between, uh, you know, at the lower end, people talk about ten billion US dollars. At the higher end, people talk about uh, thirty billion US dollars. That is a huge uh, difference between ten and thirty billion dollars. But again, uh, all those things, I believe, will come out in the coming years and I think uh, uh, we will just have to sit and wait rather than uh, speculate. As to your question about uh, income disparity, yes, the income disparity in Sarawak is very bad uh, between the elites and the normal people, and especially uh, between the uh, different uh, groups and also between the urban areas and the uh, rural areas. Um, I think a lot of these things uh, can't be resolved immediately, especially income inequality, because the trend in Sarawak is actually consistent with the trends in uh, the whole of Malaysia. Uh, If you look at Malaysia, right, uh, the trend now, the worrying trend now is that the intra-inequality between the three major ethnic groups, the Malay, the Chinese and Indians, between the richest Chinese and the poorest Chinese, the richest Malay and the poorest Malay, the gap are getting bigger and bigger. So in Sarawak, you find basically the same thing uh, so this is something where uh policy makers uh, have to intervene to to create a, a a better playing field uh the bottom line is is it's not a problem it's actually a malaysian problem and that is uh, malaysian workers are very very badly paid uh, uh, you know, basically the owners or the capitalists are the ones uh, getting the bulk of whatever profits are made. And of course the argument put forward is that the reasons why Malaysians are badly paid is because productivity is low. Uh, part of part of that argument is true, but uh, but that sort of argument for me, right, is, is, is not the full part of the picture. The full part of the picture is actually that uh, our education system is in a crisis. We're just not producing uh, skilled workers. Uh, you know, you can, you can, uh, you know, the people who say, oh, not true, University Malaya or USM, they rank very highly. Uh, yes, that is all true. But it's also true. It is also true that we produce uh, low quality graduates. Because if we produce good graduates, right, the marketplace will have some sort of self correction. You will be willing to pay. So uh, most people are shocked when I tell them that, you know, a top Honours graduate in engineering from University of Malaya living in Glen Valley. Starting salary is between three to four thousand ringgit. It's I mean, uh, ridiculous. Not, so I can imagine how difficult it is, right? So, people in Malaysia are really, really underpaid. So, unless the government do something about the wage policy and upskilling, uh, you know, uh, this income inequality thing uh, will not work. So it is part of the the, the the larger picture. So it is not uniquely Sarawak. But I think in the Sarawak case, I think I mentioned this last week because the Sarawak elite is so small, the wealth is concentrated so much in such a smaller group, right? I mean, the joke in, in Sarawak, my friends tell me is that basically if you look at the, the big money in Sarawak, right, it's concentrated in about 30 different families. And you can tell who these families are. You just look at the stock exchange and you look at who are the key owners of these Sarawak-based companies and you know exactly uh, who I'm talking about.
0: So with that in mind, the Booming Putra Economic Conference is coming up, James. And earlier you brought up a very interesting point, that Sarawakians and even Sabahans, for the longest time, they have seen, uh, you know, they have been perceived as third class Bhumiputra. You know, that's what how they they say, they have been perceived and I think there's a lot of truth in it. Because even when you look at conversations surrounding the Bhumiputra economic conference, should it happen? Should it not happen? What does it mean? It is all seen through a pro-Malay or anti-Malay type of discourse, type of lens, which in my opinion is very peninsula-centric because a very core group of Bumiputras are Sarawakians, are Sabahans, are the orang asals from Sabahan, Sarawakians. How important is this upcoming Bumiputra Economic Conference? Are Sarawakians keeping a close eye on it, hoping that it would be more inclusive than it's ever been before?
1: So I think for the uh, non-Muslim boom drug grouping in Sarawak, in Sarawak is mostly Dayak, in Sabah is the Kadazan Dusun, the KDM group. Um, I think they're looking at this very, very carefully. My understanding is that they've been invited to take an active participation in this congress and uh, they will be pushing very hard for specific, are uh, NEP-type programs, affirmative action program, specifically targeted at the Bumutras of uh, Sabah and Sarawak. They're uh, after basically wealth creation. As I mentioned, in terms of education opportunities, they've always had quite good education opportunities through the UITM network. Uh, UITM, uh, they actually have uh, two branches in Sabah, uh, one in Labuan and two branches in Sarawak as well. So they've always had that access. And of course, uh, don't forget, there's also University of Malaysia Sabah and University of Malaysia Sarawak as well. So in terms of education access, I won't worry too much about it. Uh, like I said, higher education is an issue of quality. Uh, but in terms of wealth creation, yes, uh, I think they will be pushing very hard for uh, wealth creation. Uh, for me the the problem with the Btra uh, economic Congress is it's is not so much the wealth creation part uh, governments can intervene uh, to create wealth the problem is that who benefits from the wealth creation because if you look at government intervention to the NEP right the people who actually benefit from the affirmative action the wealth creation portion of it right is actually the elite Malays or the Malays who are connected I'm not they are the main beneficiaries so in terms of sabasara if you don't design a program properly right then it is the elites in that community the elites in the KDN community who will benefit and the ordinary uh uh, uh diets and, and KDN people will not benefit so we're back to square one uh, that is one issue uh the secondly uh, second big issue in terms of the uh Bhuntra, uh, uh congress is that uh when they talk about intervention in the last 60 years in Malaysia, right, they talk about uh, basically uh, through government intervention, through uh, wealth creation is via basically the GLC vehicle. That's number one. Secondly, is through uh, government like, like uh, they're setting up tariffs to buy shares in companies. So that's an equity thing, right? Um, the bad news is that uh, they've been doing this since 1971, since the new economic policy. And this thing has not worked. So I'm really hoping that Anwar Ibrahim will have, uh, you know, uh, think out of the box about some other uh, uh, new policy stuff. Because uh, if you think that you're going to do the same thing, expect a different outcome, uh, you know, the famous saying by Albert Einstein, you keep doing the same thing, hoping for a different outcome. I don't think it's going to work. I think the reality is that you need a a, a real policy intervention uh, right at the bottom from from the get go, and that the wealth distribution goes down uh, rather than than business opportunity for the elite uh, uh, Bumi, bumitra companies from Sabah and so Because we know who owns them, and if that if the opportunity goes to that group again, uh, then you know ten years from now you and I will be sitting now and talking about the same issues
0: over and over again. Absolutely. So, a hot topic I'd like to get your thoughts on, James. There's going to be a slew of redelineation exercises around the corner. Um, basically, um, you know, constitutional process of drawing electoral boundaries uh, or redrawing to ensure that the value of one's vote is equal, irrespective of our geographic and demographic breakdown or background. I mean, that's the principle of it, um, and it takes place once every eight years. So, Srawa can begin redelineation exercises this year, Sabah in 2025, and Peninsula Malaysia in 2026. So, this is the big question. Should East Malaysia receive one-third of the parliamentary seats available?
1: So a lot of people, especially some of my NGO friends, CSO friends in Kuala Lumpur circle said that this is really unfair. We should really look at uh, uh, electoral system that is based on uh, one person, one vote. Uh, Yes, that is true. But here we're talking about the issue of historical grievances and a set of guarantees uh, that was uh, negotiated uh, at the time of independence. So you cannot apply today's uh, standards and lens on something that happened uh, in history. Uh, Because if you start doing that, right, then many of the issues uh, that was done in history, you can come back and and, and argue about it again. Uh, I'll give you a very uh, extreme case, right? Because there are some uh, extreme Malay groups uh, out there saying that you know uh, that uh, the the so-called uh, pendatan, the non malay should have never been given citizenship, <laughs> right? And that uh, we should open up this discussion again. Uh, that was the deal done before uh, Malaya became independent. Uh, yes, it was negotiated by the British and the elites. Uh, that, you know, the quickest way out to form uh, the federation and get independent was that the existing uh, uh, Chinese and, and, and Indian population, at that time, almost all of them were born outside Malaya, right, were given citizenship. Uh, so, you know, if, if you want to talk about uh, history and you apply today's lens, uh, then you really opening up a can of worms. Uh, my stand is very clear on this issue. Uh, this is a uh, part of these historical grievances packages. This was a sort of package uh, that was uh, uh, formulated and agreed upon before the federation uh, was established in '63, And as far as possible, we should not row the boat. We should go along with it. Uh, now this may be so-called anti-democratic, but if you want to talk about democracy, uh, you know there are lots of things uh, that is uh, not democratic in Malaysia. <laughs> in fact, a very very simple thing uh, when you talk about democracy in Malaysia is that uh, your ability to to uh, uh, voice out a concern or your ability to protest against the government, all oh, this is highly regulated in Malaysia. For example, you have to be Uh, I'm not saying that uh, uh, you you cannot say what you want, but you always have to be very conscious that in Malaysia, right, you can't say anything related to royalty or you can't say anything uh, related to Malay special rights. So you can say that that is a form of censorship. Uh, You know, in terms of protecting against the government, you know, you can't hold protest because you need a police permit. So everything is, is, is tightly controlled. So to suggest that you know, somehow this, this electoral thing uh, you know, uh, doesn't apply to uh, uh, historical issues, I think uh, this is the sort of a fake argument that we're seeing. Uh, my position is that uh, if you want uh, Saba and Sarawak uh, to be happy going forward, uh, less turbulence in Malaysian politics, in some ways, it's actually a good thing to apply this break to Sabah and throughout the two-thirds, so that if anything were to go wrong, at least... Uh, at the very minimum, if there's any major constitutional amendments, you have to consult the leaders in Sabah and Sarawak. And there's also one very important point that uh, the CSO community in Peninsular Malaysia don't bring up. Uh, they talk about uh, everything being equal, right? And that they said that this argument on constitutional amendment uh, doesn't apply uh, because, you know, uh, parliament is supreme. Uh, that is actually, again, not true because anything to do with uh, Malay special rights and Malay adapt and Malay royalty right, Uh, parliament actually cannot pass it without the consent of the Conference of Rulers. So, <laughs> you know, the sort of argument they put forward about democracy, parliament is supreme, one vote, one, all these things, right? There are all sorts of caveats in the Malaysian system. So I think a lot of people talk about this issue. Yes, you know, say one person, one vote. On, you know, it's a very, very simple argument. Everybody sort of said, oh, yes, yes, yes. But if you sort of dig dig a bit deeper, I think uh, two issues come to mind is that, you know, uh, this is uh, really grounded in history. You can't apply today's lens. And secondly, a lot of things uh, they say about is actually not true. If you dig a bit deeper
0: and look at it in more detail. So three points to that that i like to get your thoughts on. Number one, CSOs, at least the ones I've spoken to, aren't saying that right now we have one person, one vote, one value, and that if we give East Malaysia one-third of the seats in parliament, it would violate that concept. Um, what CSOs have said is that things are already bad right now. Um, things are already violating that, con- that, that concept, that principle um, you are, we are looking at terrible malapportionment, oversized constituencies, where a person in a constituency in Perlis may have 10 times the value of the vote as someone living in Bangi or Kota Raja or Damansara. And on top of that, Sabah Sarawak already, right now, have an overrepresentation of seats when compared to its population density. Second point, there are constitutional and electoral experts who argue that one third seats in parliament for Sabah Sarawak wasn't exactly stated in the MA63 agreement. And third point is that many um, CSOs argue that Sabah Sarawak should instead push for a devolution of powers or devolving of powers via the Dewan Negara, which is the Senate, and that when it comes to the Dewan Rakyat, we must strive for the the principle of one person, one vote, one value.
1: Yes, one of the proposals put up by the CSO is that they say you give uh, more power to Sabah and Surat through the Dewan uh, Negara, the Senate. Yes. Uh, but the problem is that in the Malaysian uh, political system, right, power rests in the lower house and not in the upper house because the upper house is not an appointed uh, body. Therefore, it lacks political legitimacy. Uh, in terms of your talk about uh, uh, the, the discrepancy uh, in, in Peninsular Malaysia uh, as I mentioned earlier this is a false comparison because in Sabah and Surah, we talk about a historical guarantee mm. so if you if you apply you know like you said today's lens and, and you said oh there's already, already a discrepancy in, in Peninsular Malaysia we have to even up the vote in Peninsular Malaysia and therefore we have to do it for Sabah and Surah. My argument is that that is a false comparison uh, because, uh, you know, uh, this is for historical reasons, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I can also dig up all sorts of historical things, uh, you know, uh, in in terms of the guarantees and say that why don't you uh, apply the historical things to today's times as well, uh, things like citizenship, the one that I mentioned, so I think it's a false comparison, I think. Uh, the reality is that uh, the delineation exercise will be conducted in the both states this year and next year. And we're very likely to see uh, the proposal put out by Sarah, uh that will be accepted. I think, um, I think the way to, to understand this is that we want the Federation uh, of Malaysia to be what was promised back in the 1960s. And the thing that was promised back in the 60s was that uh, Sabah, Sarawak and Singapore will be given indirect veto power uh, through the more than one third of the seats. And and don't forget, uh, when they got rid of the Singapore seats, it was never redistributed to Sabah and Sarawak. So you know you can already make the argument that you know there was a mistake made then you know in '65. So why don't you remedy you know, the, the the mistakes? I mean, if if for example, uh, if you want to apply this sort of uh sort of a what if scenario, you can say that you know if the seats in '65 were really disputed, the Sabah and Sirat, where Sabah and Sirat, back from '65 almost had one third. Then today we won't even talk about this. Then maybe the trajectory of a Malaysian politics will be very different. You know so. Um, False comparison. Uh, yes, people are unhappy, but then you know if you look at history, there are all sorts of uh, stuff that 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 you know when you when you apply today's standards and lens when you look back, right? Uh,
0: it is not right. Before we wrap this conversation up, um, final thoughts from on the future of Shrawa. How will Shrawa emerge from under the shadows of tight Mahmud?
1: Uh, so now that the the uh, Melanao elites are no longer in charge, the power has been handed to the uh, Kuching Malay community, I think uh, the sort of that would image will be uh, quite different. I think what you'll find is that uh, the Serhat identity will become uh, stronger and stronger in the coming years. And if all the uh, economic, especially the economic policy, all the economic policy putting by by uh, Abanjo uh, uh, is successful, uh, then you'll probably find Sarawak the most uh, progressive state uh, in the coming years. And if that happens, I suspect a lot of people want to move to Sarawak.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, keep our fingers crossed on the growth and prosperity and um, you know, development of Sarawak. James Chin, thank you so much for joining me today once again. Thank you very much. That was Dr. James Chin, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of Tasmania. This conversation is also available on the BFM app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind,